Today's passage is from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, In light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. All right, we are back to our Stories of Life series where we are walking through the parables of Jesus. And while this week's parable of the wedding feast is pretty straightforward in terms of understanding it, applying it is an entirely different matter. Um, But before we dive in, we need to talk about some key differences between where we sit as 21st century Americans and where this parable's original audience sat. And no, I'm not talking about a literal table you may or may not be sitting at, but the cultural lens we bring to the table. Sorry, I got to get all my dad jokes out of my system after a few weeks off of preaching. Um, But here's what I mean. We live in, and most of us have only ever known, a highly individualistic guilt culture that is especially concerned with our deeds, actions, and behaviors, as well as the outcomes thereof. We aspire to be self-made and operate off of the cultural assumption that we achieve our value, even if the goal posts of how we do that gets moved somewhat decade to decade or generation to generation. Thus, guilt says, I have done a bad thing. And therefore, the gospel is the good news because in Christ, we are forgiven for that bad thing no matter how bad it is. That's absolutely the gospel, right? Jesus, however, and his contemporaries understood all of this, but theirs was a culture that was primarily one of shame and honor. This culture is especially concerned with relationship, status, and respect, and the outcomes of one's actions were always secondary to how one conducted him or herself. A good example of this is Jesus' statement in Mark 8, 36, where he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? While we normally view that last part as a less desirable outcome, and for the record, it absolutely is, uh, we likely don't realize that Jesus also very much had in mind the shame or dishonor that would irreparably stain 
both socially and spiritually, one's very identity as a result of compromising your integrity for the sake of profit. Whereas guilt is a mostly external descriptor, shame relates more to our nature. Someone who feels shame would articulate it not as I have done a bad thing, a la guilt, but rather I am a bad thing. It's that gut existential feeling that even if you did everything right, there would still be something fundamentally wrong with you. Now, all that said, when you read the parable of the wedding feast, which at the risk of oversimplification could be summed up as it is better to be humble than humiliated, you might wonder why Jesus is making such a big deal out of seating arrangements. Even if you understand how a metaphor works, you might still say to yourself, of course we should be humble and let others sit in the preferred spots. That's good and right. But even then, being asked to move down a little isn't that big of a deal. So like, why are we talking about this? Well, it may not be a big deal to us, but that's because we read this through a distinctly cultural Western lens. The inverse is true for Middle Eastern culture. Our allergy to failure and anxiety driving our need to quote-unquote succeed would be utterly foreign and confusing to a shame and honor culture that defines success primarily through a communal lens shaped by the common good. In other words, they'd be most interested in asking, how did your conduct bring either honor or dishonor to those who entrusted you with their good? In this case... What was entrusted was an invitation to enjoy hospitality from a host. And Jesus uses the occasion to expose the shameful jockeying for position he senses in their hearts and illustrate the not optional humility required of all who follow him. Now, as a side note, if you read the latter half of Luke 13 through the rest of 14, you'll notice that Jesus is turning assumptions upside down with counterintuitive illustrations And that's pretty much the controlling theme for a huge swath of Luke's gospel. For example, Jesus exhorts us to go through the narrow, i.e. the difficult and unpopular gate, rather than the wide path. He says that, quote, those who are first shall be last, and those who are last shall be first in the kingdom of God. And he says that we gain everything by renouncing everything. All of these are different, essential facets of what it means to be a Christian, but not strategies for success or self-development. And while there is a desired outcome in each one, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a false dichotomy there, Jesus is co-opting them to repurpose selfish motivations to make the same two-sided point he's making in the parable of the wedding feast. In other words, that in every way, it's not about you. And that is really good news for you. <laughs> now, up to this point, you're probably nodding your head, if not letting out the occasional mm or amen, right? Few of us would take issue with the general virtue of humility or disagree that yes, it is indeed better to be humble than be humiliated, right? That's duh. But while we all agree that humility is good and right in principle, especially in the relatively benign circumstance of seating arrangements, shame is a universal dynamic that we also experience. And as such, we want to find exceptions or conditions to Jesus's summary statement that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. So toward that end, I've, I've thought through and, and brought three broad scenarios in which this parable is likely challenging for us and thus particularly important to apply to. And I'll even warn you up front and let you know that I'll be going from, you know, hard to hear to la, 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 I'm not listening. Like, this is going to be fun. 
<laughs> so the first of these challenging circumstances are those times when, when we've been humbled, we, when we've humbled ourselves, but are not exalted in response. By that I mean we feel under or unappreciated after genuinely seeking to lift others up and working toward their good, yet go unrecognized for our efforts. I have a, a really good example of this, but I, I need to lead with a disclaimer. If you didn't know, um, it is in every way impossible for preachers to use themselves as an illustration in a sermon on humility, because even if you're appropriately self-deprecating and the example is of your need for humility, the human heart is deceitful enough, or at least mine is, that it can easily become virtue signaling. As in, look at me being humble by talking about how not humble I am. Yeah, it's, it's jacked up. So instead, my wife, Hannah, has graciously given me permission to share a life situation that she's wrestling with right now, uh, with the requirement that I include that this is a, quote, occupational hazard of being married to me, which that's 100% fair. For the last year and a half, Hannah has been legit killing it in her job, earning the highest marks possible in her performance reviews and otherwise making everyone around her deeply appreciative for them for making them look really, really good. She's been blessed with a boss who, though he took a job at another company several months ago, initially saw her gifts, encouraged her, and gave her incredible opportunities to grow and flex her leadership muscles. And she's on track for a considerable promotion and raise. Even in the midst of the pandemic, her boss taking a job at another company and a massive strategic restructuring in her company, she has faithfully put her head down, done her job well, supported others, and given credit away at every opportunity. She has actually legitimately humbled herself and adopted a posture summed up in a quote from author and social entrepreneur Scott Galloway that greatness is found in the agency of others. And yes, if you couldn't tell, I am incredibly proud of her. And you can probably guess where this is going. She definitely did not get that promotion or raise, and she went from feeling seen and appreciated or exalted to feeling invisible and unrecognized for her contributions. She's frustrated, and rightly so. To humble yourself and put concern for your career second to the good of your team is vulnerable, not to mention incredibly rare in a cult corporate culture that incentivizes the very opposite. And it's an act of trust that your servant leadership is going to be reciprocated. Many of you have probably heard the kind of sermon that would use this parable to bludgeon someone in that position or situation by saying, clearly, if you're frustrated, that means you didn't humble yourself in the first place, and you just need to believe the gospel more. And that might be very well be true in some circumstances, but not all, and not this one, and not just because I'm married to Hannah. <laughs> Although, it's easier to see that because we get to see each other's junk, right? No, the Psalms are rife with God's people expressing frustration, confusion, and yes, even anger at seeing wickedness and selfishness being rewarded while righteousness and selflessness is taken advantage of. This is a legitimately frustrating experience. It's a result of the fall and, and one, a circumstance in which God compassionately invites us to be emotionally honest with him. And yet, those psalms, like Jesus in this parable, do not give us an out for humbling ourselves. Jesus doesn't say, take the lowest seat at the table unless you've already been there for a while, watching those less deserving receive promotions and raises because that wasn't why you did it in the first place. No, 
The assurance he hints at in verse 10 is that he is the divine host whose recognition, affirmation, and honors and honor matters most. That as we take the lowest seat at the table, he sees us truly and will exalt us at the wedding feast of the Lamb, if nowhere else. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but we have two more scenarios to work through first. The second of which is what I mentioned a moment ago, when we humble ourselves, but only in outward appearance. Just like the rest of us, affected by the fall and original sin, so, you know, all of us, none of us, including Hannah's intentions, are 100% pure. Only Jesus can say that with with a straight face. What I'm talking about here, though, is just as subtle but far more consequential. You see, the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about is not taking the lower seat at the table despite thinking you actually deserve a higher one. Jesus isn't telling us to devalue ourselves, but to do whatever it takes to lift others up, including, but not limited to, taking a lower seat at the table. Tim Keller describes this difference when he says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In other words, humility that is only concerned with our self-humbling is still self-interested. If anything, it's the very definition of of false humility and the root of much public posturing and virtue signaling that is neither edifying nor trusting, never mind trustworthy. No, instead, Jesus is far more concerned with the condition of our hearts. His statement that those who humble themselves will be exalted is both an assurance for the afflicted, as I already described in Hannah's situation, but it's also a mirror that exposes our own pervasive self-interest. In, in other words, it's not enough to act humble. We must actually believe that others are more deserving of that seat of honor. Let me explain it this way. We live in a society that largely determines value by what we do. But we are not human doings. We are human beings stamped with the indelible image of a creator of infinite worth. This is commonly referred to in the church as the doctrine of the Imago Dei, and it is one of the table's five core values because of how easy it is to forget it being surrounded by that culture. Any and every secular argument for the equality of persons, despite race, gender, or creed differences, implicitly relies on this very same historic Christian doctrine as its foundation, even as it often contradicts itself by motivating change with a utilitarian ethic that says, We're not actually equal equal until blank happens, whatever blank is. To which the biblically rooted Christian would instead say, no, blank should happen because we are already equal as image bearers. Now, we can debate on what should or should not fill in that blank, but my point is this. One motivates with a bootstrapping fear that further burdens human beings with living as human doings, And Jesus liberates human beings to not have to do anything to earn the right to dignity and respect. We instead have only to receive it from the God in whose image we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, says the psalmist. Because all human beings are made in the image of God, and that is the originally created determination of our present worth, because that value is not achieved through performance but received by grace, and because, as the Apostle Paul says, all have failed and have fallen short of the glory, also known as the honor of God. None of us have any more right to sit in a place of honor than any other, period, full stop. I don't care whether, and, and that includes the MAGA right, the woke left, and the squishy middle. 
That includes your posture towards the, quote, because you worked hard for your money, as well as your posture toward the wealthy because, quote, they must be selfish and their money ill-gotten. To believe any different is not only unbiblical and unchristian, it is, un, it is antithetical to the gospel and the economy of God's kingdom. This is why racism, be it intentional or, and personal or incidental and structural, is abhorrent to Jesus. And confronting it initially, but not exclusively, initially, in our own hearts, and definitely not merely in our external behaviors or pu public posturing, is entirely within the scope of, quote, taking the lowest seat at the table. To quote, or to, to count others as more significant, i.e. more worthy of honor than ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians, is exactly what Jesus is getting at here, so long as we, cons we interpret consider as that a deeply felt, heartfelt and comprehensive belief rooted in the Imago Dei. So, how are we doing? I hope this has been fun so far because I have saved the best for last, and by that I mean you will need to actively resist the very real temptation to tune me out. So far we've talked about the, our struggle to humble ourselves when we're not exalted, i.e. When, when we feel under or unappreciated, as well as when we humble ourselves in appearance rather than for the sake of edifying others. Now let's talk about the scenario where it is likely hardest to apply the parable of the wedding, wedding, feast, wedding feast. When we feel humiliated. In other words, humbling ourselves is hardest when taking that lower seat at the table is something done to us or forced on us. Now, let me get back to Hannah's situation because there's more to it still. In addition to the frustrating news that she wasn't getting a promotion or a raise, i.e. not being exalted or recognized according to her value, there's also growing evidence that the innovative ideas she's been developing could be given to others to run with and get credit for. And despite the frequent and explicit encouragement of her value from the powers that be, the restructuring functionally resulted with her being lower on the totem pole than she was before. Professionally speaking, our place on the org chart is a solid parallel to our seat at the table. And her experience is understandably even more frustrating knowing that it is just one example among many where women in the corporate world, A, are not as valued as men for the same contribution, and B, chronically have their contributions given or credited to male peers. So how does that follow? How does she follow Jesus and humble herself by taking the lower seat in that scenario? Great question. Danny, I think you should tackle this one. Yep. <laughs> I'm kidding, mostly. Um, but this is, this is exactly the kind of scenario where our right and biblical ideals of rightness, fairness, and justice are confronted with a definition of humility that can seem to imply and has often been communicated as such that we have to either A, take on the posture of a stoic injustice-enabling doormat, or B, introduce slippery slope exceptions to Jesus' teaching that we then hide behind or use to justify selfishness in lesser scenarios. The good news is that there is a third way. The bad news is that the more it is required of Christ's followers, the more it feels like death. When I talked to Hannah about using her situation as an illustration, any hesitancy she had stemmed from not wanting me, in her words, not mine, to, quote, put a nice bow on it or make it sound less messy than it is. Quite the contrary, Jesus taking Jesus seriously and ourselves lightly, as this parable exhorts us to, is anything but neat and tidy. For Hannah... It means being as wise as a serpent and as peaceful as a dove, using every professional opportunity and avenue she has to climb to the corporate ladder like anyone else, 
but doing so from a place of humble confidence, anchored in her dignity, value, and worth, being derived not from an org chart that places her lower than she deserves, but from a crucified Messiah who lifts her higher than she deserves. Jesus left his place of honor at the right hand of the Father and descended not just to the lowest seat at the table, but to a place of such undeserved and unjust execution between a murderer and a thief with an attitude utterly empty of self-concern that while he hung from the most creative torture instrument humanity had yet invented, he prayed for those responsible for his humiliation, saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Let me be frank. All of us at the table have either suffered abuse within the walls of the evangelical church, personally know someone who has, and or are inundated with what seems like an endless stream thereof. The late Rabbi Zacharias' abhorrent behavior coming to light over the last few months is just one of the most recent. I am painfully aware of that context. Not least because my first job out of seminary was under a verbally, emotionally, and spiritually abusive senior pastor. This person, who I was eager to learn from, tore me down publicly and privately. He weaponized my wounds against me and chronically betrayed my trust to keep me off balance. It was wicked. It was evil. It hurt like hell. And none of it justifies any response other than, Father, forgive him. He knows knows not what he does. Even as I say that, I feel in my own heart an unease because what I just said is also the kind of thing that has been twisted by those in seats of power and places of authority to perpetuate some of the very systems and structures that enables abuse in the first place. And frankly, I'm still working out some of that tension myself, but being as wise as serpents and as peaceful as doves means we can neither gloss over that reality nor throw the baby out with the bathwater. Part of why I'm not letting up on this point in particular is because it, is, it used to be that the evangelical right conservative culture in our country had the corner on moralism while the secular left majored in relativism. But in the last five or six years, it really feels like that has flipped. Now, an experience of injustice permits or excuses treatment in kind on both the left and the right. Right? We want to undemocratically silence the voices, voices of those we disagree with. Why? Because they might silence someone else's voice. And if we're honest, we're most worried about ours being the one that's silenced. It's as tragic as it is hypocritical, and a valid and legitimate need for us to grow in empathy has become an ironic and confusing legalism that says, if you're not mad, you're not listening, but often, not, though not always, means or implies, if you're not outraged, you're subhuman. That is a very serious problem because honor is a prerequisite for mercy. We will never forgive someone we do not first honor. And Jesus forgives us because he honored us enough to make the cost of forgiveness worthwhile. For the world, self-righteous anger, not other edifying mercy, has become the currency of our invitation to have a seat at the table or not. On this point in particular, I need you to not... I need you to not hear what I'm not saying. (laughs) There's absolutely a place for righteous anger in the face of injustice, and I hope you've heard enough sermons from me to know, by now to know that. What I am saying is that in our cultural moment, the lines differentiating between a right and good anger 
and a, a, a kind of anger that Scott Sauls refers to out as outrage porn or that obsession with being both right and wronged, that line is incredibly blurry and hard to see. And because outrage is incompatible with humility, never mind mercy, we cannot obey Jesus in taking the lower seat without honestly examining and opening ourselves up to others to examine the motivation of our hearts. Let me hit this from one more angle, and I promise I'll move on, because <laughs> there's good news at this. When you first read the passage on your own, did you see yourself primarily as the man in need of healing, or as one of the self-concerned guests jostling for a place of honor? Were you annoyed that said guest didn't get the dignity of that man in need of healing? How, how would you feel if Jesus told you to take the lower seat, to keep open a place of honor for someone like them? You see, maybe even more concretely, would you welcome to have a seat at the table, in this church, the table, a genuinely repentant person who has humiliated someone else, even if they are willing to submit him or herself to accountability? Is there space here in this community for someone who maybe feels a lot more like someone you have been abused by? Bluntly, if the gospel is not big enough to encompass those you see as the enemy, no matter who they are, you don't understand the gospel. Paul, the apostle, who literally murdered Christians before becoming one, reminds us in Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, that, quote, God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is simply the gospel. Humility is not just an ethic or a good idea or a virtue. It is it is an intrinsic part of receiving the honor, dignity, value, and worth that Jesus longs to give us. Let me tie all this together. I know we covered a lot of ground and touched on more than a little that isn't necessarily directly related to this passage, but we went there to demonstrate both Jesus' uncompromising command for Christians to humble ourselves, as well as the far greater infinite humility of Jesus summed up in one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, which says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And here's the key part. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus does not call us to carry a burden he has not already carried the infinite weight of is as comforting as it is humbling. Whether we fail to humble ourselves or we do so for a reason other than edifying others, it is Christ's humiliation on the cross that exalts us as Christians. It is what C.S. Lewis referred to as the great exchange. Jesus didn't just take a lower seat at the table, he became the table around whom we gather. So when we celebrate communion again, as I hope and pray we are able to do uh, in an outdoor service on Easter, it will be a celebration of the good news that Jesus loves us too much to let something as impotent as sin and death keep us from himself. 
And so when we, when we proclaim he is risen and he is risen indeed, it is on the basis of his exaltation through resurrection that we can humble ourselves in any situation until he comes. The word in Philippians that, that we, we translate as emptied himself, it's kinodoxia. It means glory empty. It means that Jesus emptied himself of any self-significance. That's what glory, doxa, means. He emptied himself of any worth he might have had compared to what he saw as the incomparable worth of being reunited with his people. If Jesus loves us with that kind of love, there is no circumstance, no scenario, no situation, no hardship, and no humiliation that we cannot take the lower seat at the table in the midst of and be comforted by his own humiliation as a promise and assurance that we are exalted in his sight because there is no other reason why he would come to die on a cross. Hallelujah. Praise be to God and amen.